How cool was that? So I just, I just want everybody to get a glimpse of this. Um, if you're wearing one of these yellow shirts, that means you were a worker here this week. Everybody stand up. You got one of these yellow shirts on. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Look around. It's amazing. Okay, sit down, glory hogs. It's not about you. See, it's amazing to see that God has done such an amazing thing this week with VBS. Kids' lives were touched, and so many of you were instrumental in that. I was just blown away as your pastor to get a chance to watch all of you using various different gifts and serving in all kinds of ways. Some of you were at home praying. Other people were here on the setup day getting everything ready. I'm telling you, this place looks naked right now because this was an entire castle courtyard all week long. And now it just feels like, man, this is boring. I don't know. <clears throat> so it was a phenomenal week of Vacation Bible School. The kids are doing their finale in there today, and that's going to be sort of a cap for them. Um, but it's just been an amazing time, and I'm so thankful to you parents who entrusted your kids to us. It was a great time. Uh, and hopefully it was life-changing. And the interesting thing is that every year that we do this, I hear about kids whose lives were changed in a moment. And I also hear about adults whose lives were changed just by being a part of this VBS experience. So sometimes our lives get changed forever and it happens in a moment. And um, you know, we've all, many of us have experienced this in various ways. For instance, when those of you, raise your hand if you're a parent. If you got a kid, raise your hand, okay. You're gonna understand what I'm talking about. When you become a parent, your life changes instantaneously and it is never the same again. Can I get an amen? amen. They, they hand you this child and you think to yourself, I am not remotely qualified for this job, but they make you take the kid home anyway. <laughs> and, and it doesn't matter that you're not qualified. And it is crazy to think how simple and easy it is to become a parent when everything else is difficult. If you just wanna get a driver's license, you've got to be at least 16, you've gotta take a, a classroom class, you gotta take behind the wheel training for so many hours, you have to pass a written test, you have to pass a driving test, and all of that kind of stuff just to get a driver's license. If you wanna, if you wanna say, become a lawyer, you're gonna have to finish high school, go through four, five, six years of college, depending on how much you party, and then you're gonna go to graduate school, that's another three to four years, at a roughly an average of $150,000 in tuition, so that you can take a test that you're almost certain to fail, called the bar exam, in hopes that after two or three times of taking that exam, you will get approved and you will become a licensed attorney in this state. It's incredible what it takes to do that. And then if you want to become, let's say, a cosmetologist, well, that seems like it should be easy, right? Uh, no. It's about 1,500 hours of supervised experience, classes, tests, and licensing just to learn how to cut people's hair. I cut my own hair with no training whatsoever, right? 
So, so to go through any of those kinds of things, it takes all of this prep, but you want to become a parent? All you have to be able to do All you have to be able to do is prove that you can install a car seat correctly, and then they will let you be a parent, right? I don't know what you guys were thinking. But the second they hand you that child, it changes your whole life forever. You will sleep less. You will spend more. You will not wear a clean shirt for about three years. You will spend weekends at things like dance recitals and soccer games and uh, animated movie premieres. You will have a big night on the town from time to time when you get to spend three hours at Chuck E. Cheese. You will worry about things that you never worried about before. And you will pray more than you've ever prayed before. And you learn to be less selfish than you've ever been before. Becoming a parent is one of those moments that changes your life forever. Another one of those is getting married. I'm married. Sorry, ladies, all of this is spoken for. Sorry. (laughs) I have been married for 37 years, and I am absolutely overjoyed to be married to my incredible wife. But I will tell you, it is different since I got married. Example, tomorrow I'm taking the day off. Would you like to know what I'm doing with my day off? I'm going to the Lavender Festival. (laughs) I'm gonna go look at acres of purple flowers. That's what I'm gonna do on my day off. I I can tell you, I probably wouldn't have done that with my buddies when I was single. I'm just... (laughs) Probably would not. Hey, Bob, you want to go look at some flowers? Yeah, let's look at flowers. <laughs> but you get married, it changes things. I have 10 pillows on my bed. When I was a single guy, I did not have sheets on my bed. You get married and it changes things. It's definitely one of those things that changes things very quickly. But absolutely nothing has changed my life as much as it changed one day in September of 1979 when I had knelt down in the presence of God and asked him to become my Lord and Savior. When I transferred the ownership of my life to him, I knelt down in one kingdom and I stood back up in another kingdom a whole new person, with a whole new king, a whole new life. Everything changed instantaneously. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what happens when you actually transfer kingdoms in your life. And that's what we've been talking about all week long with the kids at VBS. And last Sunday, I talked a little bit about what it means to live in this world when we as Christians are not of this world, but we find ourselves in this world. We, we represent a different kingdom. And all week long, that's the topic of VBS. And those of us in the yellow shirts, we have been pulling our hair out to... <laughs> 
to try to help the kids get that point and to understand that God invites them into a new kingdom, into a new life, into a new way of living, into a new set of values that can change everything. We had this medieval times theme, if you didn't pick up on that. We had knights and kings and dragons and even an evil duchess. Boo. <laughs> Some dude with long gray hair and a beard that was running around this place. We called the police, tried to get rid of him, but they came. They said, well, he has a key to the place. We have to let him stay. So he stayed. Uh, we played games, sang songs. We, we made new friends. But the point of the whole thing was to help kids learn to live as part of God's good kingdom. But it's not just kids that need to learn this lesson, you guys. All of us are invited to be a part of God's good kingdom. But what does that look like for us? Because one thing is for sure, the kingdom of God is very, very different than the kingdoms of this earth in just about every way. Maybe, you know, we could say the kingdom of God is completely upside down from the kingdoms of this world. Or probably a better way to say it is the kingdoms of this world are upside down compared to the kingdom of God. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was, I was reminded of probably the most famous sermon that has ever been preached. It's become known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's preached by a guy named Jesus who also had long hair and a beard, by the way, so don't judge. And, and Jesus preached that at a very early stage in his ministry to sort of set the tone of what he came for, what his ministry was all about. He said he came to usher in the kingdom of God, to make the kingdom of God available to people and to help us understand that. In the book of Matthew, we get a picture of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, you're gonna turn to the first book of your New Testament. And the Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. But I will encourage you, it will be encouraging for you to know, I'm not going to preach through the whole thing, I'm not even going to read you the whole thing, but I do want us to get a glimpse of how Jesus began his sermon. Let's read beginning chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's stop right there. You know, when you're learning to preach, uh, they teach you a few things sort of universally. And one of them is you, you have to sort of start things off kind of easy. You want to you wanna invite people in. You, you want to, you know, sort of get maybe a whimsical story, some humor, something people can relate to. So you get their attention and you can hold their attention. You're supposed to do that. But I guess when you're the son of God and you're the best preacher that ever was, you could just jump right into stuff that is going to rock people's world. 
Jesus' Sermon on the Mount doesn't have any cute illustrations or nothing funny. It's no get to know you kind of stuff. He stands up and goes, listen up. I am here to tell you that everything you thought was true is false and everything you thought was false is true. I'm here to turn your world completely upside down. And he dives right in with this section that is known as the Beatitudes, where he basically sets people on their heels by challenging them in all of their presuppositions. Just about everybody at that time assumed certain things about what made life successful. And that's true today. He says that the truly blessed people, the truly successful people, have a whole different set of values and a whole different set of characteristics than the rest of the world. Look again, verse 3, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. You know, our world likes to promote the idea of self-sufficiency, right? Um, there's a, there's a famous Whitney Houston song that says, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. The idea is that just by virtue of being you, you're good enough. But Jesus says that none of us is good enough to earn the favor of God by our works. He says that none of us is good enough to earn our way into heaven because of how well we behave or how wonderful we are on the inside. And, and he even goes so far as to say our problem might just be that we love ourselves too much. That, and maybe selfishness is at the core of a whole lot of the things that motivate us and the things that we do in life. And here's the problem with that. When it, when it comes to gaining eternal life, you and I are not good enough. No matter how rich or how powerful or how famous you are, you don't have the spiritual currency to buy a place in heaven. None of us do. The world says, climb the ladder. The world says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? The, the world says, look out for number one. Do what it takes to get ahead. And then God comes along and, and he says, hey, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and trust that he will lift you up. That's a very different way of thinking. Why? Because this is a different kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are not like the kingdom of God. The motivations of this world are not like the motivations of the kingdom of God. The world values pride and self-sufficiency. But in God's kingdom, it all starts with being poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit means you're poor on the inside. You're, you're meek, you're humble, and, and you're not full of yourself. You will, you will never come to God until you come to the end of yourself. And this thing that our world teaches us to, to trust yourself and love yourself and promote yourself, guys, there's nothing wrong with loving yourself. It's just that you already do. That's the thing. It's not that God wants us to hate ourselves. You and I, we're, we're human beings. We're made in the image of God and that makes us eternally valuable. It makes us incredibly special. And so God's not saying, hey, hate yourself, despise yourself. He's just saying, you already love yourself. 
That's why you look out for yourself. That's why you feed yourself. That's why you take care of yourself. That's why you wake up and go to bed thinking about your own interests. It's because you already love yourself. And what scripture says is love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, don't buy into that baloney about, well, so you better love yourself more or you'll never be able to love your neighbor. No, God is saying, you already love yourself so much. If you would just love your, uh, your neighbor the way you love yourself, you'd change their lives. So, so he gives us this really unusual approach. He goes, if you want to be blessed, you need to humble yourself. You need to be poor in spirit. You need to trust that when you humble yourself, he will lift you up. Now, now let's keep going. Look at verse four. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This one really flies in the face of the values of our world. Who wants to mourn? I don't know anybody who's like, man, my life would be great if only I had more to mourn over. That's not what anybody is aiming for. But it's an interesting idea. I think there's at least two aspects to what God has in mind when he tells us we need to be people who mourn. The first I think is rather obvious and that is we need to be mourning over our own sin. We need to recognize when we are without Christ that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and we need to mourn over that because until we are broken, we will never turn to the one who can heal us, amen? So, so he wants us to mourn over our own sin, our own lostness apart from God. That's a given. Every one of us, just because we're human, every one of us experiences a certain level of emptiness in our lives when we're apart from God. That's because sin separates us from him. Because of sin, we are spiritually dead unless and until Christ delivers us through his grace. Now, leave your finger in Matthew chapter five, but I want you to go to the middle of your New Testament and find the book of Ephesians. So it's, it's later in your New Testament. Um, Paul writes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Find Ephesians. Now, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter two. <clears throat> And listen to how Paul summarizes this. Ephesians chapter two, beginning in verse one. He's speaking to Christians here, describing how we used to be. And here's what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's not that you were damaged. It's not that you weren't doing that well. You were dead spiritually, he says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you were in the wrong kingdom. You were serving the wrong king. And you were dead spiritually because of that, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And then my two favorite words in scripture, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Huzzah, Huzzah. right? That is good, 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 good news. So there's an aspect of this mourning that is personal. 
that we should take personally. We should be mourning over our lostness and our inability to save ourselves or we're never, ever going to come to God. But I think there's another aspect of this mourning that applies to our lives even after we've come to God. And that is, I think we're supposed to mourn um, over sin in general, the impact of sin in the world, the suffering that has caused because of it. We, when we hear the word mourn, we think of death. We mourn at funerals. Uh, we, we mourn, say, on Mother's Day if we've lost our mother. We, we mourn because of those who have been taken and we're not gonna see them again in this world. And that's how we mourn. We, we associate mourning with death. Do you know that all death is a result of sin? Romans, it says the wages of sin is what? Death. Before sin, there was no death. Without sin, there would be no death. And, and, and there's people struggling everywhere today because of the general impact of sin. So let me ask you to think about this. When you see people struggling as a result of sin, do you tend to judge them or do you empathize with them? See, apart from the grace of God, we are all in the same boat, and that boat is sinking. And people turn to all kinds of things for comfort. Alcohol, drugs, relationships, whatever, whatever's going to dull the pain. But it's a brokenness over sin that is causing the problem. And we should be mourning over the sin that is impacting people that we know everywhere. That should lead us to cry out to God. After all, only he can provide the comfort that people are longing for. So we are blessed when we're poor in spirit and when we mourn. That sounds like an upside down kingdom. But there's more. Look at verse five. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. In our world system, it's aggressiveness that pays dividends. It is the aggressive salesman who who gets the sales award every month. It is the aggressive athletes who win the prizes. It is the aggressive politicians who get elected to office. These are the people who succeed, the people who will not take no for an answer, the people who just keep coming, the people who just keep fighting, the people who just keep going, the people who will run over whatever is in their way in order to get to their goals. And that's the way the world sees it, and that's what we see every day. Most of the great athletes that we uh, worship and adore are these kinds of aggressive people. Most of the leaders in our community are these kinds of aggressive people. And again, it's not that being an athlete is sinful. It's not that being a politician is sinful or being a leader is sinful or anything like that. It's just that this approach to saying, I will take what I'm after is what the world says gets you ahead. And Jesus says, it's gentleness. It's gentleness. Another word, maybe in your Bible, it says meekness. Blessed are the meek, which is a word we don't use that often anymore, but you know that, that the Greek word really is probably better translated as meek. It, 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 it describes a horse that has been broken and trained and now can be used by its owner. That horse is not any less powerful. It's just that the power is under control. And so Jesus says, listen, it's those of us who 
who will humble ourselves, who will be gentle, who will not insist upon things, who will, who will trust God to take care of us instead of forcing our way ahead. He goes, you know what? Those are the people that are going to inherit the earth. And do you know why that is? It's because we don't have to earn the earth. We don't have to buy the earth. As children of God, our Father owns the joint. And it says he will give it to us as an inheritance. And as you read the end times prophecies, you see that that is exactly what happens when Jesus takes control of this kingdom again. It will be those who follow him who will rule on the earth. That's what the scripture says. And so it's about trusting God enough to let him take care of our success in life. And and let's look at one more characteristic and then we'll wrap it up for today. Look at verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. We live in a world where people hunger and thirst for so many things that they think will satisfy them and they never do. Money, power, fame, beauty, prestige, sex, drugs, rock and roll, you fill in the blank. Thinking, man, that's what I want. That's what I want. It's that life. It's that power. It's that fame. It's that beauty. If I just had that, then everything would be fine. And we will sell out our lives to get those things only to get them and go, wow, this doesn't make me feel any more fulfilled than I was before. It doesn't satisfy. It's because there's that proverbial God-shaped void in everybody's heart and only God fits there. And we keep going, oh, let me try this one. No, let me try this one. No, let me try this one. And we're destroying ourselves, chasing after things that will never satisfy us. And the world tells us that's the way to do it. Think about this. The most rich, famous, and powerful people in the world are always hungry for more. There's a famous true story about John D. Rockefeller. He was the first billionaire in the world. He was by far the richest man on earth. He had riches beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And someone asked him in an interview, how much is enough? And his answer was famously, just a little bit more. And he was driven to make that one more dollar, one more deal, one more success. And he went to his grave like that. When you have all the world has to offer and you're still empty on the inside, what a dark place that must be. That's why we see so much drug addiction and suicide and broken relationships among the rich and famous. The pursuit of what the world has to offer only leads to greatest hunger, greater hunger for satisfaction. And that hunger cannot be satisfied by anything this world has to offer. Only by a relationship with God. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be blessed. Because God promises that we will be satisfied. Man, we hunger for so many things and they never satisfy. It's the same, this very same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, later on, Jesus says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You're worried about what you're gonna eat? You're worried about where you're gonna live? 
You're worried about what you're going to wear. You're worried about your prestige and your honor and all that kind of stuff. He says it's not found in this world's kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all of these things will be added to you. Ask yourself this. What do I really long for at the core of my being? Is it money? Is it the respect of people? Some new adventure, some honor or trophy or award that I could be given? Or is my longing deeper than that? We all long for love. We, we long for significance and peace and approval. We long for approval from the only one who really matters, God. No matter what the world is selling us, the only thing that really satisfies is that you're right with God and you know it. And the only way that can happen is by his amazing grace that he offers us through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, this is, this is an elementary school level sermon. I have heard this stuff before. Well, I hope so. It's the most famous sermon ever preached. Not my sermon, Jesus. Mine's like second or third, probably. But, <laughs> but you're thinking, yeah, I've heard all this before. But are you living by this world's values and chasing after things that will never satisfy? Or are you actually experiencing the kingdom of God right now? Because you're living according to the values and the purposes of his kingdom. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you, if, if you never knelt down in one kingdom and got up in another, if, if Jesus is not your Lord and your King, and if your life is not guided and directed by your relationship with Him, then I want to encourage you to open your heart to the idea that that thing you're longing for is not a thing, but a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And, and that to know him is the simplest thing in the world because it is incredibly costly to have a relationship with Jesus, but the price has already been paid. Jesus went to the cross to pay the price so that you and I could actually have life everlasting. He said, I came that they might have life and that more abundantly. What the world has to offer is all going away. It's all going to burn. It's all going to slip through our fingers and we're gonna wonder why did I spend so much effort chasing after this? But Jesus offers us true life and it's a free gift. He's already paid the price. It's just a matter of bowing our hearts before him and saying, Lord, I accept. You're gonna be king. I'm gonna follow you. It's gonna be about your kingdom and no longer about mine. If you've never given your life to Christ, I strongly encourage you to give great consideration to that. Talk to someone who brought you. Talk to a Christian who you know. Ask them about how this happens and how it works. If you want to talk to me, I'll be here afterwards to talk to you. We want you to understand that life really comes when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. But one last thing. Um, If you are a Christian but you're not really experiencing that joy and peace and hope that you keep hearing about? Ask yourself whether you're actually living according to his kingdom values or whether you're still chasing the things that this world says you should chase. 
Too many Christians are trying to chase after all of that stuff that we think will satisfy when we already have a relationship with the only one who truly does. He'll give us all we need for our satisfaction. Maybe today is the day to stop chasing the carrots of this world that wave in front of you and instead cease striving. Know that he is God and let him lift you up. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Only he can give us what we long for. Something to think about. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, we come before you now. I I just am so thankful. So thankful for the truth of your word that you've already done what it takes to give us life abundantly. And that you don't depend upon us to somehow pull ourselves up and climb the ladder. That, that the things that this world has to offer are never, ever going to satisfy, but that's okay because you do. You comfort when we mourn. You lift us up when we humble ourselves. You give us peace when the world offers us brokenness. And so, God, we thank you that you have allowed us this life in this world, but help us to live in your kingdom while we're here. May we pursue the things that matter to you. May our hearts be broken by the things that break your heart, Lord. May we be motivated by the things that please you. And may we experience life abundantly. We pray for every one of those children that is uh, what's up here on the stage, the ones that are in our families, the ones that are in the communities, the ones that, that, are, that are so young and impressionable, and the world is screaming these false values at them. Help us to love them, Lord. Help us to lead them to you. Guard their hearts. Raise up a new generation that will be transformed by your grace and will transform their world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.